1: Hi, this is Austin Real Estate Investing. This is Jordan Moorhead. Today we have Mark Hinteman, and he's going to be telling us all about his experience investing in real estate and what he's doing in Austin right now. How's everything going with
0: you today? It's great. How's it going with you?
1: Good. It's a little cloudy here in Austin. I don't know what it's like in LA, but a little gray today here.
0: It's uh, sunny here. Um, I just uh, got out of a writing session and my girls are outside the window. Hopefully, I'm not too loud playing in the backyard. Um, so, yeah, all good.
1: All right. So, real quick, Mark, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you're involved with real estate investing.
0: Okay, sure. My name is Mark Henteman. I am a real estate investor. And also a writer and producer uh, in television. I've been one of the original writers on the show Family Guy. I've written movies. I ran Family Guy. Have created a couple shows for Fox and MTV. And basically, when I got to LA, I was terrified of the uh, the entertainment business. And so, I uh, you know. In a roundabout way with my first couple of script payments on a brand new show called Family Guy, I uh, invested in a duplex and that got me started in real estate. And, you know, I unexpectedly got completely hooked on it and have done that concurrently with my writing uh, career for the last 20 years.
1: That's awesome. So you started with the duplex. When was that first duplex?
0: uh i so yeah i a little bit of my trajectory i'm from uh cleveland i'm from uh, ohio Mm -hmm. and i moved after college to new york uh city and was completely broke living in new york i thought it would be fun to try to get into the writing business and uh you know so i spent uh, some traumatic times Mm -hmm. there at least like bolting awake in the middle of the night panicked over how i was going to pay my rent and I realized that this is a rocky business and a tough business. Um, but when I got out to LA, I, I ended up writing for David Letterman in New York, and then uh, moved out to LA uh, with my fiance at the time. And I started on this new show called Family Guy uh, back in 1999. And uh, you know, no, none of us thought it would survive. We thought it was you know going to last about three months, and we'd all be unemployed. So with my first couple script payments. I, uh, which I, I had like $45,000 total. I think I got paid like $23,000 a, an episode. I went wandering into an open house on one Sunday, basically because my landlord had raised the rent on my one bedroom apartment and talked to this broker. And she was like, "You've if you've got $45,000, why are you throwing that away on rent when you can put that towards a mortgage? And I was like, a mortgage, like that, that seems like the worst thing I can do. You know, because I I can be unemployed. My show could get canceled tomorrow and probably will, and I could be out of work for the next six months or maybe even a year. And you think I want the responsibility of a mortgage? And uh, she kind of argued and made some points. Oh, it could be an investment. And I was like, Well, an investment. Like, yeah that that sounds attractive, but what about the risk associated with it? And anyway, I said, the only way I would ever take on a mortgage is it would have to be the best investment I have ever made. Um, It couldn't be a cute house that's overpriced. Uh, It would have to be something that could give me a uh, financial cushion that I was desperate for. And You know, she must have been, had slow traffic that day at the open house because we talked for a little while. Then I left and I figured I'd never hear from her again, but she called me two weeks later and said, I found the property you need to buy, but there's a catch. You need to become a landlord. And I was like, a landlord? That doesn't sound fun at all. But I met her at the property and it was run down, you know, it was kind of run down, you know, this... Charming, charming architecture buried by overgrowth and peeling paint. And it was, uh, but it was in a good location that was up and coming. There was still graffiti on the, you know, the sidewalks of this, this street. But it was very close to a place called Larchmont Village, which had a ton of great restaurants and coffee shops. And it was walkable, had a farmer's market that everybody seemed to go to. Um, and you know, finding a walkable place like that, where you could, where you don't have to drive on the weekends, you can just uh, you know walk everywhere, is a big thing. So I could tell that it was good. I, I could tell that it was an up and coming neighborhood, but uh, but just a unkept property. The uh, owners, I remember the sellers were were leaving because they were going to move to Kansas and dig a dig a hole and build an underground house and oh. live off the grid and they were raising goats and chickens in uh in the backyard of this house in LA in the middle of in the middle of central Los Angeles but uh you know it was interesting to me and I was a little bit tantalized by the you know prospect of you know getting this investment and and having something that could provide a cushion but i was also terrified and there, were, there was also 15 other buyers uh, oh, wow. At the time, and we got in a bidding war, and I think the first couple of days, I'm like, "Well, what do you think?" And, and this broker was like, "I think you should go for. It. I think there's a this is a really good price, and I think you know if you fix this up, you'll do really well for yourself." So I, I sort of half trusted her, wasn't really sure, but went on a roller coaster ride of a bidding war where the price was going up $15,000 daily. And uh, I had offered 350,000, it was listed at 379,000. Uh, and we went up, you know, the, the bidding went up every day. And after about two weeks, I won the bidding war and paid $435,000 for this property. Wow. And thought I had just made the biggest mistake of my life. And that this was going to bankrupt me. Uh, You know, uh, uh and i would be digging myself out of this hole for for years to come um but yeah i tried to embrace it and moved in my uh my first tenant was a guy named mike henry who is a voice actor and writer on family guy he does the voice of uh cleveland and herbert and consuela if people know the show um and yeah, I mean he used to make fun of me for being a landlord and I used to threaten to evict him, you know, <laughs> pretty much on a weekly basis. But I was also like convinced that I had made the worst mistake of my life buying this thing. So I was reading books and trying to learn about real estate and trying to dig myself somehow out of this hole and, and try to survive this thing. Uh but Yeah. So I, I owned that and I, I sort of think about it in this way that in year one, I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life in year two, I refinanced. And at the time the rates were going down. So I think I might've gone from a 7% interest rate, which, you know, you don't see that anymore Mm -hmm. down to maybe like a five. So I went down quite a bit that allowed me to get out of PMI. If you guys know what, uh, if your listeners know what PMI is, and, and then, in, but I, then in year three, Mike Henry moved out. My, my tenant moved out. I was able to raise the rent about $450 and I thought real estate was the greatest thing in the world. So by, wow. you know, I did a, f- a complete turnaround and I was like, I have to do this for the rest of my life. Um, and started buying other buildings was always salivating over the, 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 f- the, I was in a duplex. I was always salivating over the the fourplex across the street, and you know, then even the sixplex next to that. I was like, "Oh man, you know, if you had six units, you know, one of them goes vacant, you still got five more that could cover your your mortgage." And so I was I was very tuned in and a believer in economies of scale. And yeah, and I, I, I basically owned that first duplex for five years. I bought it for 435,000. It was listed at 379 and I sold it for 1.27 million. Whoa. And uh, it was, I caught a good, a good up swing in the market. I got to say, I also, you know, renovated it. Uh, and it really enjoyed the renovation process as well, because I think partially you know, I'm in the world of abstract ideas all day long in writer's rooms and you it's easy to get in your own head and trying to figure things out and you don't know if it works or if you don't, or if it doesn't. But it was fun to come home and after work and just real estate was so palpable, so concrete. It was there. <laughs>
1: <You> yeah. <know? laughs> so how much did you put down on that first property?
0: I was unaware of the FHA loans, but I did get a 10% first-time buyer loan. And so I put down $43,000. Okay. so And I think, go ahead.
1: 43,000 turned into a little over 800,000.
0: Correct. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And it turned into, I think like Mm 830,000. And then I went to my, and I had been reading, you know, my, my sort of self-education that I was attempting to do, you know, caused me to go to my CPA and I said, "Hey, you know, I have an idea about this duplex, and maybe this is a common thing that everybody does." But I said, "Can we, can we um, take the primary residence uh, married couple five hundred thousand dollar ex- tax exclusion on our side of the duplex, mm-hmm. and then can I also ten thirty one exchange the rental side?" And they said, oh, "Yes, cool. you can." And so we pulled out, we pulled out five hundred thousand dollars, and then took the rest of our proceeds, which was about like three hundred fifty thousand, and put it into I think a sixteen unit in uh, in LA. Oh,
1: awesome! So, real quick, just to explain some terms for everybody listening, uh, PMI is private mortgage insurance. You have to get that on anything where you put down less than twenty percent. Uh, On a loan like Mark's, if he would have paid it up to 20%, that would have gone away. But since he refinanced, he just got out of it anyway. He obviously refinanced him to a loan where he had more than 20% equity in the property. But another term we just mentioned was a 1031 exchange. That's a tax-deferred exchange. Essentially, the government's saying, you can pay taxes later if you reinvest that amount of money into a larger property. So they're assuming... That later on in the future, you're going to pay more taxes than what you would have paid had you paid taxes on that property you were selling. So they let you send that into a bigger property, make more money out of that, and then pay them a bigger chunk when you sell that property. That's their thought process.
0: Right. Deferring. Mm-hmm. Basically pushing your your capital gains exposure or bill down the road.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that stuff. Um, so you... The first property you bought was a duplex. What came after that? I know you 1031 into a 16 unit, but...
0: Yes, I think in the meantime, while I owned that, I was starting to get to know brokers and I bought a fourplex, a four-unit building, not too far away. It was in prime Hollywood, mm-hmm. but really kind of another rundown, uh, another rundown property. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think... I bought another fourplex out of foreclosure before I bought the 16 unit. So I was just adding, and it was always, I think like, there's so many things that I did on my first deal that I would never do again. And, and just like, I evolved a criteria and I evolved like what I'm looking for. Cause I didn't know what I was looking for on my first deal. And ironically, this will be, <laughs> well, uh, ironically that first deal you know i made about 2000% return on my equity and i will never touch that like i can never duplicate that and i haven't sure. certainly done a 2000% return and primarily i got that you know exaggerated return because i got 10% down i've mm-hmm. never had that kind of leverage so as a result i've never had that kind of gain
1: yeah, I, I want to touch on that real quick too. I think a lot of people don't realize how powerful those low down payment loans are. Yeah, you may you, you do have to live in the place. You put down less than 25% on a multifamily property, you need to live there. But the returns are exponential compared to what you would get if you put down 25%. Because let's say you're putting down 35 or 10 or 15%, you get such a higher return when you go to sell that property. So you know, Mark put down 43,000, if he would have put down a hundred thousand know, and that 2000% return would have dropped it only a thousand percent return still really, really good, but not as good as you got with that low down payment.
0: Right. Yeah. And f- another way to look at that is, is if I paid cash, mm-hmm. I would have, you know, bought this $435,000 property and, and, gotten the gain on, uh, 1.27. So it would be roughly like a, a 3 X mm-hmm. on the money. But, uh, with 10% down that 10 times, that makes 10 times 10 X's your gain. So it was 30 X. Yeah. And then uh, I, you know, I, it's not quite that what happened in reality. Cause I had expenses and stuff like that, but, you know, leverage is powerful oh, if yeah. you use it you know, carefully.
1: Yeah. Uh, I love that. You know, I think that perfectly illustrates the point of leverage right there. So, you know, there's difference between putting down cash, which is really safe, but you're not making as high of a return on your money. I think people get confused. They say, well, I'm making a higher cash flow every month, but you can grow your money exponentially if you use leverage safely and effectively.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if this is getting too much into the weeds, but as I evolved my strategy -hmm. And like I said, I never never used the same strategy. Which (laughs) with that first deal Mm -hmm. afterwards, and I and what that strategy was on that first deal was just guess and hope the broker wasn't steering me wrong. And thank God she's awesome. Her name was June On, but she steered me right, and uh, she was right about that property. And and you know we've been friends ever since. But after that, I was you know studying and, and evolving like this strategy for investing in real estate. And I didn't know at the time, like now that social media has become a big presence in the multifamily space, I didn't talk to another multifamily investor for probably like six years of my first investing. So nobody told me you couldn't invest in LA um, or in coastal markets. It was just where I was. Mm -hmm. And so I was always looking, my criteria became I looked for the cheapest, the lowest cost per square foot. Like that was the metric. And, and as your investor, you know, listeners may experience and you as well, like I would get a little exasperated when I was look combing through a lot of properties. And LA has, you know, thousands of properties to look at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it had a cap rate and okay, the cap rate's pretty good. And the GRM is pretty good, but the cost per square foot is really high. And like there's these three or four metrics that you could look at on these properties and none of them were all going to be great. You were never going to see a great you know a, a, a high cap rate, a, uh, a low cost per square foot, a low cost per unit, and a uh, low GRM. Uh, so I was like, how do I decide? Cause I kept looking at these properties and then I'd see like, okay, well, three of the metrics are great on this, but the fourth one is really bad. Like, um, like for example, uh, yeah, the, uh, the cap rate is, is high and strong. The GRM seems good, but the cost per unit is very, the cost per square foot is really high. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what is that? Why is that? And you could, if you get experience, you realize that what that tells you is that that's a newer, probably a newer product mm-hmm. and they're, they're achieving good rents, but you're paying a lot. And, and where I, like, one of the things I zoned in on is, is I knew that most properties in LA sold from like the lowest was around 250 a square foot in the highest you know, could go up in the seven hundreds, or uh, there's a thousand dollars a square foot in some uh, coastal areas. So I, 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 became a fan of cost low cost per square foot because what that told me is it was you're buying just the asset itself for a very discounted price, um, and and it was probably a value add, and so I because I wanted a value add. And then, and then that got me over that first hurdle of like, how do I choose the property? Is like, okay, if it if it hits my criteria for low cost per square foot, um, then the next thing I go to, you know, where is it, and if it's in an up and coming location, that sort of checked off a box, and then the other thing is is uh, Los Angeles is a rent control market, so so you can't you don't have free ability to. You know, bring rents up. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of buildings that had low cost per square foot and were in good neighborhoods, but the rents were really low, which meant you can't get any leverage on it and you know you don't have that much freedom. So I I created this metric called leveraged cost per square foot. And I would basically assess what is my, you know, we we all say cost per square foot, and you're you're talking about the cost. Per square foot for the, the sales price, but I wanted to know what the cost per square foot I would pay after incorporating leverage. Okay. And yeah. so if I had a, if I compared like five properties in a row side by side, the one that had the, the, the lowest cost per leveraged square foot would be the one that I would most likely buy.
1: And what Mark's talking about there is, you know, with commercial financing, they look at how much debt can we give you based on what the property's making. So, you know, you referenced rent control, Mark. You know, if the rents are low and you're not making a ton of income, you can't boost that up. So you can't get high leverage on that property. Let's just use an example. You know, they need a... It's a million-dollar property, but based on the rents, they can only loan you 600000 So you have to bring $400,000 to buy this million-dollar property. Whereas if the rents were good, they might be able to loan you 80%, which is 800000 Then you only have to bring 200000 to the table. That makes a big difference when you're going to buy multifamily property. Even if there's all this potential there, um, especially when you have rent control, you can't realize that very easily, but that affects what debt you can get. I think it's uh, it's difficult to understand that if you only see it from a residential financing lens, because residential financing is just, hey, we're going to look at you, the person, and we're going to look at the property, make sure it's worth this, and we're going to loan you 75% of that total value. Right. So, it's completely different. Yeah, I love that. So, Mark, you went uh, 16 unit in LA is where we were last left off. What okay. What was next after
0: that? Let's see. So I I had the the market started getting a little rocky. Maybe by 2000, maybe like 2005, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, I think I mentioned that there was a foreclosure. That I I bought my first foreclosure. It was a four unit. And then I think I bought a couple other, I think I bought a six unit and maybe an eight unit. And then the next sort of significant thing is uh, and by the way, so what I was doing is I was going to work every day, you know, and writing jokes and stuff. And I was telling everybody that I worked with, like, you know, you gotta get, you know, you gotta do something, you know, do yourself a favor and invest in real estate because you gotta build some kind of financial cushion. This is a really volatile business, telling all my friends that, and you know, trying to get them to be smart with their money. And uh, I think ultimately, nobody would do it to my surprise. And after a, a bit, they were like, well, you won't stop talking about this, so why don't you find, find a property and we'll go in on it with you? And so I started searching and, uh, and I found, a property, a six, another sixteen-unit building that, in in 2008. So by 2006, I was really wary of what was happening, and you know you could see the writing on the wall. Something bad was going to go down in the real estate space, given the really loose lending. And so I stopped buying. And then in 2008, the market slid, and we started to hit this recession. And it went down about ten percent, and then it plateaued. The market plateaued, and I thought, like, okay, I had been waiting for this. I wanted to see a correction. I wanted to to uh, wanted the real estate market to shake off all this, you know, inefficiency and issues that it had. And when I saw it go down, I started looking. I found a distressed seller. You know, this was a a partnership that everybody was suing each other over and they were desperate to sell. And I locked in this property, which I thought was at a great price. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was October of 2008. And right after we removed contingencies, Lehman Brothers collapsed, followed by Bear Stearns and the whole world economy just plunged into, you know, the deep recession. And what, what I had experienced is I think there was a, uh, like, that That was a little deceptive. That slide that I thought was the correction was actually just the beginning of a much more significant downturn. But anyway, I was like, oh, crap. You know, these are my friends. I see them every day. They're smart asses. They're never gonna let me live this down. And, uh, uh, but, you know, took over, tried to do the best we could. And, you know, ironically, it was a, it was like a B minus C C class workforce housing, you know, in L A, and just kind of took it over, and it it pretty much maintained throughout. At the only kind of hiccup we had during the downturn was uh, the lender, the lender, uh, which was a local lender that was discounting all of their portfolio, all of their loans, uh, their uh, the properties. Based on the downturn, they had come to us and said, uh, you know, we want you to meet our debt coverage ratio, but we're discounting it due to the recession, and you know, you got to add a little bit more to your your down payment. We did, oh. we did do that, but otherwise, we held. You know, we had the luxury of holding during that recession. A lot of there was a lot of single family home foreclosures, so you saw we saw people moving into apartments. And so we kind of held, we held pretty steady to my surprise and and it worked out.
1: Awesome. I want to talk about that real quick because I know a few people who were buying pre-08 and held through 08 and were fine. It sounds like you did that. Did you have any losses through that time? Did you lose any properties?
0: No. Okay. No, knock on wood, everything everything went through, everything, everything went fine. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to say, you know, say I never had challenges or something, but yeah, 2008, we navigated it somehow.
1: Well, it sounds like you were doing your homework before you were buying properties too, and making sure that they were going to make sense and you can be able to cash flow and make money. And then you had some upside there to turn around and make them better.
0: Yeah. And I think like you're saying, I think it was always, you know, buying, I didn't buy really expensive properties. I didn't want to hang out there at the top end of the market. So it was always very much, you know, workforce B and C class with value add. And they had to have those and they had to be in solid locations, solid submarkets. And those three combinations, they're always full. Yeah.
1: Yeah, people always need a place to live. So you yeah. mentioned warning signs where in, in 06 you started to see some stuff. What did you see that made you weary during that time?
0: I was reading about you know, I was reading about all the foreclosures that I think started possibly in Florida, and you were reading about this wave of like unprecedented foreclosures and defaults. And you know, the the lending you know, the, what are those lending? They, they had a nickname for them, like no job, no ninja. ninja. <laughs> right. Right. That. And I remember being at a bar in, uh, in like 2007 and some guy was, was there who was like part of our group, like a friend of a friend who was a, a loan broker mm-hmm. who was just boasting about how much commissions he was making uh, by slamming people into these loans that had no business qualifying these loans and this guy kind of seemed a little a bit like an idiot yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like this guy is making money hands over fist hand over fist like something's wrong yeah but yeah just this I think the warning signs were there mm-hmm. very much there I think uh I remember at the I was a little bit shocked in 2011 and 2012 and 13, like, Oh, you know, nobody saw 2008 coming. Like, of course, everyone saw it. Anybody who paid attention saw it coming.
1: Yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, And I think the questions everybody, everybody is going to have is what do you think about right now? So I know everybody's saying, Oh, this feels a lot like Oh six. There's, everything's going up so quickly, prices are so high. Do you see any warning signs right now personally? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, nobody does. Nobody knows what's going to happen in a month, much less a year or two.
0: Yeah, I wish I did have a strong take on it. This is this feels a lot different than 2008 to me. 2008 you you knew that the the banks in order to gain more market share, had just way loosened their lending criteria. And they were lending to people who didn't have jobs, had no way of paying it back. And that was just a a disaster waiting to happen. And at the same time, prices were surging upward. Um, So you knew that was not going to end well. Nowadays, I think, uh, yeah, I'm more worried about maybe the stock market. You know, the stock market spiking. The single-family house uh, spi- uh, uh, sector spiked due to the pandemic, and I can't tell if that's if that's you know a, a, a cause for concern um, or is it is it just that uh, you know maybe the baby boomers are are all buying houses now you know demographically maybe there's something some logical explanation that doesn't necessarily suggest we're headed towards disaster.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think everybody's what what most everybody will say who's in the real estate industry, which you always want to take that with a grain of salt, uh, myself included. I'm in the real estate industry. Is there's a humongous demand, especially for places like Austin where I am, and then for places outside of large metros like you know outside of L.A., Orange County, outside of San Francisco. Once you get over to Sacramento, just going nuts. Um, New York City has the same thing happening. But there's yeah. a tremendous demand all over the country. Uh, these places are not exclusive. And there's a very low supply. A lot of that is from builders can't build as fast as they need to. Prices of supplies are going up so quickly. Some people are still just scared to sell because of COVID. And then at the same time, interest rates are rock bottom. So Mark, you talked about a 7% interest rate. I had a client last year, get a 2.25% interest rate. Yeah, uh, wow. I've seen tons of them in the threes, just very, very appetizing rates. And that means people can pay more for houses. So exactly going up and up. But like you said, we just don't know, you know, we never know until we can look back and say, Hey, that's what happened. Um, that being said, there doesn't seem to be any signs of any sort of malplay or, right. or any issues. I'm sure that um, all of us it, at some point in time will look back and say, look what happened. you
0: know. Uh, right. Analysis it, in hindsight. I do think that, you know, what could happen, like if you, if you go across the board, like what are the potential potential, potential events that could, could cause trouble and one would be it you mentioned interest rates are very low if interest rates were to jump up yeah. that that would definitely impact the single-family home oh, space
1: yeah. absolutely because you you know every little bit your interest rate goes up your payment goes up so when your payment goes up you can't afford as much and when you can't afford as much especially in markets like Austin or outside of la you might be priced out of the market so Right, Mark's saying that could be a chain reaction that could severely affect the market. If interest rates go up a point, which is a percentage point, that's a big deal. And that could hurt a lot of people's chances of buying a home. Um, So real quick, Mark, I know we've talked a lot about just general real estate investing, your experience in LA after you got your job working at Family Guy. Um, You've been doing that for a long time. When did you start to invest in Austin and why Austin?
0: I had I had been building a portfolio in Los Angeles starting in 2000, Mm -hmm. and by by somewhere around 2015 16, I think I might have had 22 properties, 22 multifamily properties, ranging from you know I think maybe a seven or eight unit to 36 units, 40 units, and you know I, I had had this growing thought that I need to get another market. I mean, LA has earthquakes. It's one city. I need to diversify. And so I, I wanted to look for a second city, a second market to invest in. And I was like, well, what's going to be the best market? What's the best market to, to invest in? I got a blank slate. I could go anywhere. I did want it to be not entirely across the country. I wanted a pretty easy flight. So I was doing research and I had narrowed it down to, uh, Salt Lake City and Denver or not Salt Lake City and Austin. And I was also looking at Denver and, uh, I started analyzing properties and I really liked Austin. And so I, you know, started visiting and I found a partner, um, and, you know, uh, Nick, uh, Amaluxan, um, and we, we started collaborating and we were vetting deals, underwriting them. And we ended up buying, uh, yeah, we ended up buying like a 53 unit followed by a 72 unit followed by a 62 unit, I think it was. Uh, um, and then we, we've kind of continued from there. And we did one syndication, we did our first syndication uh, not too long ago but uh, we had built our own portfolio prior to that and had been operating it and uh, you know I you know love the growth uh, Austin's a, a really amazing city I think you know it's got some contrasts with with California and, and you know there are there are, there are not everything is a, easy in Austin there's tons of competition the taxes are a little bit challenging um but uh, yeah as far as as far as tech growth, tech job growth, job growth, population growth—all those things are are kind of you can't beat what's happening in Austin. Um, almost anywhere else. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think it's, it's going to be a
0: different city. Yeah, and you probably you probably see this every day. Yeah, <laughs> the high—they're rebuilding the highways, they're rebuilding the airport to accommodate mm-hmm. the growth. And I think uh, ten years from now, fifteen years from now. It's going to be, you know, a mega city.
1: Yeah, no. So there's so there's forty plus towers in some stage of development. So you've just gotten their <laughs> Is that right? approved, where they've broken ground. Yeah, there's forty <clears throat> plus towers, and that's citywide. So they're starting to span out. I know I'm on the east side. They're starting to talk about forty plus story towers on the east side, and everything's a little ranch or duplex around here. And you're thinking, man a 40-story tower down the street sounds pretty big. Um but yeah, so yeah. let's let's hit the partner thing real quick. Your partner Nick's awesome. He's been on this podcast. How did you meet
0: Nick? I met Nick through Bigger Pockets. Oh, I right. think I think he uh I think he might have reached out to me mm-hmm. maybe after I did a, a podcast for them and uh and I you know he I think he reached out to me and asked, can I pick your brain? And I, I always, you know, I get it there. I don't get flooded with that. So I try to try to get on a, the phone and happy to talk with anybody if I can fit it into my schedule. And I talked to, mm-hmm. talked to Nick and and I remember him, you know, wanting to get into uh, real estate and, and multifamily specifically. And I think he wanted to uh, quit his job, his day job and we talked for a while and i was just trying to a- a- a answer his questions and then right before he hung up i was like uh, i was like wait you said you're in austin right and i was like and he's like yeah i live in austin i was like oh that's a market that i've been you know it was right at the time when i was looking at for that second market i'm like i'm looking in austin you know if you if you find anything or if you want to you know look for something together let me know and know, we kind of hung up and then I I think, uh, you know, to his credit, he started sending me some, some deals and we kind of doubled down and started vetting everything and, uh, and making offers. And eventually, you know, we landed, you know, three properties, I think in 2019.
1: I love that. So I I really like, what you've done done to get to where you are now, how you started buying all of your own properties before you even considered getting into syndication. I don't know if that was on purpose or that was just what happened.
0: Yeah, Um, I was terrified to uh, deal with other people's money.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you did a few JV deals before you did uh, any sort of syndication. But uh, yeah, that, that can be terrifying to deal with somebody else's money and have the possibility of losing somebody else's money. You start to think about, well, what about their family and their kids and their wife and all this stuff. But I really like people who have built up their own portfolio using their own money, risking their own life and everything, and and then saying, hey, maybe now I'm ready to do this. I also like what you're doing with Nick here because you are in LA, which is in a notoriously expensive market, hard to be a landlord in. And you said, "Hey, I need to diversify. I want to get out of LA." You found somebody kind of on accident in Austin, and started investing with him here. And you know, I, I know when you have a partnership that's good, you can work together and make things happen quicker and easier than trying to do it on your own. Let's say you were trying to invest in Austin on your own, you might not have made progress as quickly as you have now. Um, it can be yeah. great. Great partnerships can just blow up your business. I love that.
0: I agree, and I didn't know that for a long time, and I was oblivious and ignorant to that. I was kind of a a lone wolf. Like yeah, I, I didn't know true. didn't know any other investors. Didn't talk to any other investors. I talked to brokers. I mm-hmm. knew all the brokers in town. I didn't know another investor. Um, mm-hmm. I knew you know loan you know loan brokers and lenders. But uh, yeah, the, the, the power of, of partnerships and also just, you know, it's fun. It's fun when you can bounce things off somebody. You don't get stuck as much. You don't, you know, someone, you know, you don't second guess yourself as much mm-hmm. when you're, when you've got someone to bounce things off of.
1: Yeah. No, it can make you move forward so much quicker. Uh, so you initially got started in LA living in a duplex it's a way a lot of people get started. Now you're investing in uh, what I would say is medium sized multifamily in Austin. Um, and just for people listening, I don't know that there is any traditional qualifications for medium or large or small. I think small is is two to 20 or 30 units, medium size maybe being 30 to 75, and 75 or 100 plus, I would call large multifamily. Um, Again, I don't know that there is any specifications for those things. Um, so you, you already kind of talked about you know what attracted you to real estate. You had what, what seemed like at the time an uncertain job, although Family Guy has been going for decades now and doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Um, could you tell us about a bad deal you did or advice on how to avoid a bad deal and how you d- did so? Hey guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here. And I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it, that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing. And I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys.
0: Sure. And by the way, you know, Family Guy did get canceled twice while I owned that duplex. Oh, it was, it took us a while to get off the ground. Uh, I think we, we had one stretch that was 2 years. We were we were off the air for 2 years.
1: Really? I didn't I do did not know that. I guess I've been watching it off and on the whole time but didn't realize it canceled for a while.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh in 2002 we were getting terrible ratings and uh and Fox pulled the plug. And <laughs> miraculously that same year they put out the family guy like box set of DVDs mm-hmm. and uh you know pretty remarkably like it was the number one selling uh box set of dvds and the show was, was canceled and, and so they started to like reconsider it and uh and then a, a brilliant move by the president of of 20th century fox his name is gary U, gary newman is he offered to give adult swim uh the episodes the the sort of bank of episodes we had on family guy for free and this is their competitor and he said you can have these episodes for free you could put them on at 11 o'clock at night you know adult swim you know uh you're looking for programming and uh no no charge but if if the ratings you know if it, after a year if it's getting good raising ratings we have to have a conversation oh and cool that's what happened and it was beating and at the time like you may not remember this, but there was those late night wars between Leno and Letterman and, and everybody was getting into the late night fray, but family guy reruns, you know, they were not original programming was, was the highest rated show every single night of the week. And they, that's what kind of caused them to bring us back.
1: That's awesome.
0: Um,
1: I did not know that. That's a cool history there. Um, So I want to touch on one thing here uh, real, but real quick back to the, about a bad deal or advice on how. Oh, to sure. Yeah, a bad of course. Deal.
0: Yeah. Um, let's see a bad deal. I have been very fortunate that I have not, I have not had a losing deal in multifamily and you know, I don't, I don't even think I've had, I've had rough stretches mm-hmm. on deals. Like, I mean, uh, last year we, you know, we just had one property that, that had, you know, the, nothing came up on the inspections, but then we found mold and it became this, like, we had to relocate, you know, six tenants, uh, for, for a couple months. Um, but then we, we resolved it. Um, I have a chat, I have challenging deals. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I will say, and this is, I, I feel like I'm a minority in the multifamily space that I don't go for cash flow, and and I don't I don't go to you know the middle of the country. And I'm from Ohio and love Ohio. That's yeah. where my heart is. But I have always, you know, have always prioritized strong markets and value add, and just be careful. and In low per cost per square foot contributes to that. I, I think when you're when you're going in you know when you're going in at half of the cost per square foot then it costs to to rebuild mm-hmm. uh that new construction i think you're just protected yeah <laughs> you know you're you know and then you add value you you put in your money then after you take over mm-hmm. and you invest money to to bring that up to hopefully compete you know, it'll never compete with newer product. Totally. But you could make it, you know, you grab these old buildings from the thirties and twenties, amazing architecture. And some people want to live in those, you know, almost prefer those because of the character. Yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hear that a lot actually. So I, I like what you've done too, because you've always kept your job. Um, I'm kind of assuming because you've enjoyed your job. Uh, I'm sure if you didn't want to work anymore, you didn't have to, but probably like what you do and and take advantage of that. And I really like that too. A lot of people get into real estate to want to get out of working. I encourage people to find something that gives them energy that they like doing. Keep doing that. That's going to give you much more money to invest in real estate and then just give you unlimited options if you keep doing that. So I just wanted to yeah. give you Props for that. I really oh. have done that. I, I don't yeah. think that anybody'd be happy not doing anything.
0: I think. Uh, I think. Yeah. If, if you can do what you love, and um, you know, it's easier said than done. A lot of things that yeah. you start out loving become a headache when you've done them for a long time. But also, I'm a believer. I don't think I've any ever told anybody, hey. Invest in real estate for a year and then and then quit your job mm-hmm. because the thing is the reality is is that everybody has life changes and you may you know you may decide to retire at age twenty eight or twenty nine because you've got a a couple properties but then you know kids come along you get married and you get kids and you get uh, you know tuitions your whole economic world. Changes and spirals upward in cost. And so I don't know. It to be conservative, find something you like doing and and keep making money at that.
1: Yeah. And I think as you've kind of shown people, if you also do that, you can be in a position where you can take advantage when there's deals out there and not lose properties you have. So if you're not relying on on all your income to pay your bills from your real estate. You've got a job going that makes enough for you to be happy and comfortable. You, know, you can be more aggressive with the real estate uh, and take advantage when you're able to.
0: Yeah, I think you're right with that. That's a great point. And I think additionally, um, and it also allows you to not be so heavily reliant on cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I, I think I'm a believer in, in invest in the strongest markets. Mm -hmm. don't go don't focus on cash flow go for the best markets the the markets that are growing have job growth population growth income growth Mm -hmm. and that's where you're going to do best because you know the the eternal maxim of real estate investing is not cash flow cash flow cash flow it's location 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 get in a great location and you know you're going to have to sacrifice cash flow in great locations. Austin, you know, you've probably observed the cash flow dry up yeah. over the last 5 years as the competition increases, but you'll get the most the highest overall returns if you can focus on pro you know, on great markets, growing markets and uh do a little bit of both. Go for go for total return rather than exclusively cash flow.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about that real quick too. So, I think everybody looks at it through the cash flow lens. You know, I get people all day saying, "Well, this property doesn't cash flow." Um, it didn't, like you said, over the last couple of years, maybe decade in Austin, excluding some early times there in the last decade. It's been really hard to find cash flow here. But even if you buy last year in a good location and Added value to the property, you made a ton of money. So the property I'm actually sitting in last year, I bought it in July, didn't make a ton of sense from a cash flow perspective. I said, hey, this this works, it's gonna make money, it's gonna pay all the bills, it's gonna be safe. It appreciated roughly 30% in the last year, which is wild. And of course, wow. it added some value. Um, but that's and huge. Had-
0: and probably had leverage as well, which yeah. amplified that 30% to maybe, what, double that or triple that?
1: Yeah, exactly. A lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Strong, strong leverage. Um, and I think there there is so much more to real estate investing than just cash flow. Uh, I absolutely believe in cash flow. I think that's a great thing. So when you're looking at an investment, let's say you're looking at a 16-unit apartment building, do you have any metrics you try to hit?
0: Do I? Yep. Um, yeah, I would always want a five cap. Mm-hmm. Five cap was like, for example, in this in in my my uh criteria is different in every market. Sure. But for example, in LA, which is like I've had the same criteria for the longest time. It's simply, you know, I want to buy at $250 a square foot or less mm-hmm. because it costs five hundred dollars per square foot to to build a new product in the mm-hmm. average of LA is probably around 400, you know, of all inventory. So I want to be way below that. And then I want to combine, you know, way below that on a cost per square foot. Uh, I also want a five cap because, you know, in a a market like LA uh, where it's kind of an A, in terms of lender's eyes, it's an A location. So it's a strong location. So you can get good leverage on a five cap. You could get seventy-five percent, and then you know beyond that value add. I think uh, the low cat, the low cost per square foot, is going to suggest that there's going to be a value add because you're buying, you know, a, a probably an old property and probably a not, not updated property, uh, and then awesome. great locations. Great locations always find the hottest. You know, find a great city a great market and then find a great sub market.
1: And, you know, when you mentioned that management comes to mind, do you find management is easier in a great location rather than a a not so great location? And did you come to that conclusion out of experience or just because you like good locations?
0: I just like good locations. I wouldn't say management as far as third party. I don't know if you're talking about third party property management. I think third party property management Yeah. I think it's a mixed bag. I think, uh, I think you gotta, unfortunately you've, you've got to watch your third party property manager. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've got to set clear criteria. I mean, it's a hard job. It's a thankless job. Um, but I think you just get, you get neglect in, in almost any, anywhere I've never seen, you know, I've, I've seen, I've worked with some great property managers thankfully um, but I've also sifted through a number of bad, you know, a, a, a number of subpar property managers or ones that tried, they just weren't equipped to, you know, operate at the level that I wanted them to. So,
1: Yeah. No, I, I absolutely. Third party property management doesn't just mean you give it to them and never think about it again. I know that's the thought, but in reality, you give it to them, you need to work with them, make sure everything's going well. And then you can, take your foot off the gas a little bit when things are running smoothly and you're, you're seeing, they're doing the job you want them to do, but you still want to check in every so often with them.
0: Yeah. And you know, just a quick insert, you know, Nick. So when Nick, uh, you know, when Nick and I started talking, you know, he wanted to quit his job. And, and one of the things I said, how about like, maybe there's an arrangement that we could get a win-win is, uh, maybe I'll pay you if you want to come on and be my my asset manager mm-hmm. and, and just create, you know, measures in performance, the, you know, uh, standards for all of the properties across my portfolio. And so he became my property manager, uh, or my, uh, oh, asset cool. manager and, you know, really stayed on top of that stuff. And, uh, it was a win-win, you know, it was like, he got to leave his job and, and, I got, you know, another set of eyes watching, you know, the three property management companies I was using at the time.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah, he's got that personality. So I could see him being really good at that.
0: An engineer, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very systematic. Mark, what's one thing you would tell a newer investor looking to get started? So you've been investing for 20 plus years now across multiple markets. You've house hacked. You've stayed in the multifamily lane after that. What would you tell somebody that's just looking to get started today, let's say in Austin?
0: In Austin okay I would I would tell somebody starting in Austin, you know I'm a syndicator, but I would not say join a syndication. I would I'd say I think the best deal out there is house hacking. If you can buy a duplex, um, buy a duplex and fix it up and and take advantage of that FHA loan that first time it's it basically much of it boils down to the opportunity as a first time buyer to get like a 5% loan 5% down payment loan mm-hmm. gives you phenomenal leverage so yeah. if you can raise you know, if you could increase the the uh value of it by 20 grand you know at 5 at a 5% down, that's 20 times that 20 grand. So, you know, you just went to, was that 400,000? Your $20,000 gain became $400,000 of gain. It's just really, you're in a position to have really powerful leverage and just make sure you don't, you're not, your value isn't gonna go backwards.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that, you know, there's so many benefits to house hacking, too. Not only do you get this amazing leverage, but you also save so much money every month. You save some money on your taxes, you get that appreciation, you can get some cash flow, like you said. Um, you just get so much of everything with that amazing leverage. And I think that's overlooked so often oh, I'm not going to get this great cash flow. And I think if somebody went, Went back to you now and said, "Well, you can put down three and a half percent. You're probably going to be a four or five cap. You know that that looks a lot more attractive than having to put down 25 percent."
0: Yeah, yeah, and I like you were saying you're you're completely right. Um, one thing I remember about living in that duplex when I when I bought this duplex thought I had made this mistake is uh, I was always fretting living in that thing. I was, I was always fretting about like the dishwasher that broke next door in Mike Henry's, uh, my friend's uh, uh, kitchen. And it was gonna cost me like $250 to replace. And I was like, oh man, like what a mistake this was to buy this duplex. But what I totally was not aware of is I was not aware of uh, the appreciation that was happening. I had my loan on you know, auto pay down. I was oblivious. I was oblivious to the, the principal that was getting paid down every month. I was oblivious to, you know, the, the momentum of the market that was increasing the value. Uh, and I was oblivious to the fact that I had a 10 X leverage. I had 10, 10% down. So every time, you know, the building went up in value by, you know, by $10,000, I made a hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. So uh, yeah, there's all these invisible forces and those things are, yeah, it's it's appreciation, it's rent growth, it's depreciation. I was totally oblivious to depreciation, but you had all these benefits from that as well. Um, and loan pay down, pay down, those are just a few of them, but yeah. they're all working in your favor and combined- Really powerful.
1: Yeah, I think the old saying is uh, buy real estate and wait, not wait, wait to buy real estate. Um, Yeah, I really like what you're saying there. So there's so many forces working in your favor, but you really don't realize them until a lot further down the road, until you made $800,000 off the first property you bought. You know, like you said, you thought every day, this is the worst decision ever. I'm going to lose all my money which logically doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's it's very easy to think that way. Think, oh, I put down that huge chunk of money that was all the money I had. I'm going to lose it all. But really, are you? How how do you lose it when you're on a 30-year loan with principal and interest payments that are just automatically coming out of your bank account each month and your taxes and insurance are escrowed? You don't have to do anything. It's so sweet. You know you have a lot of commercial loans. They're not as sweet. Um, yeah, right. 30 year loans are awesome.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and you're, you know, part of your original question was what would you do if you're in Austin starting out? Mm-hmm. And I think in a city like Austin, yeah, you're so, uh, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be competitive buying, yep. but, um, but you're going to see great growth because Austin's got, still got a ton of growth ahead of it mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, I I one thing I notice on, you know, for example, like the bigger pockets has uh I, I don't know, it, it's been a while since I looked at it, but it had like the best, the best markets. Mm-hmm. And and it said and it measured by cash flow. And the top the top two or three markets were Flint, Michigan and Youngstown, Ohio. And and I grew up near Youngstown, Ohio. And there's nobody. There's no jobs in Youngstown, Ohio. The population is declining. Flint, Michigan, is not one of the best <laughs> uh, it, economically. So, um, you know, you're in Austin. You're the opposite of that. Like, mm-hmm. beware of chasing cash flow because you you're going to get the best cash flow in the worst city, mm-hmm. like mathematically or logically. You know, because cash flow is a function of demand. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so you're in Austin, it's going to be competitive, but you know, you're going to do well if you can, if you can get in and stay in, in a market like Austin.
1: Yeah. I love that. You got to get in, but then you have to stay in too. Um, You know, Mark, you've been investing for 20 plus years. It sounds like you're very well versed. You didn't start meeting other investors until six years in. So were you reading and, and consuming content that way before that?
0: Yeah, I was reading books. I was reading every book that I could nice. on uh, on real estate and in real a little bit of real estate taxation. But just trying to figure it out. And I would talk to brokers a lot. I became friends with a lot of brokers, and mm-hmm. you know, would pick their brains about stuff.
1: Awesome. So, what's your favorite business or mindset book? If you're just going to recommend one to people.
0: Um, you know, one that I'm I've. Reading just recently is, I think it's called the Twenty One Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hadn't. You know, it's been like a gap in my education. Is is I've read a, a lot of real estate books, you know, a lot of business books, but you know, I'm a little bit fixated lately on leadership, and it's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating sort of arena and and how powerful it is when when you know leadership is good.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of those things that really ties into doing well in real estate is when you've got great communication skills and you can be a good leader, obviously you're going to be more successful as a real estate investor. Uh before we started here you and I were talking a little bit about habits. Think habits are the same way there. If your habits are great in your fitness life, you know, if you you eat well, you get up every day, you exercise, you're going to be in good shape. But if you've got great leadership skills, great communication skills, and you have the habits necessary to to keep improving those, your real estate investing is just going to get better.
0: Yeah. I love that. Yeah. But but I always think like trade your indulgences for disciplines, Mm -hmm. trade your vices for virtues. Like, yeah, we're all, we all kind of drift through life. And if we're not paying attention or mindful about what we're doing, Mm-hmm. you know, we're going to pick up a ton of bad habits. Yeah. So yeah. be be aware of what what you're doing over and over again and you're reinforcing.
1: Yeah, I love that. Also, you know, you and I met through GoBundance. I think it's very important to get around to other people who are also trying to improve themselves so they can add to you and you can add to them and you can just all, all get better together. Um, this, this yeah, old saying, I like the, that. The sum of the five people you're around. <laughs> So make sure you're around people that are pushing you and helping you grow and helping you be better every day. Um, And be a good leader to the people you're around every day. Just being a good leader a lot of times can be setting a great example. I love that stuff. Um, Right. All right, Mark, we're getting towards the end here. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you or to learn more about what you're doing here in Austin?
0: Sure, you could check out our website which is quantumcapitalinc.com mm-hmm. or you could uh send me an email at mark at quantumcapitalinc.com okay and uh you know i have a podcast as well you could check out uh, it's called the wild west real estate podcast yeah you were uh, a guest on it yeah great show excellent job
1: awesome yeah so guys we will have all that in the show notes here too so When we publish this podcast, which will be in a a few weeks from now, um, you'll be able to find all that in the show notes. Uh, Mark, last question, the most important question we ask here on my podcast, Austin Real Estate Investing Show. What is your favorite restaurant in Austin? (laughs) I know you're in LA, but I know you come here and you eat. Let me
0: see. El Alma? El
1: Alma. Okay.
0: (laughs) Do you know that one?
1: I do. Yeah. I think I Nick, just
0: texted Nick. I said, where do we, where do we go to eat every time we're, <laughs> we're there still with him.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. I know he loves El Alma. Now there's so many good restaurants around here. It's hard to choose a bad one, but it's always good to have good recommendations. So go Absolutely. check out El Alma guys. <laughs> All right. Cool, thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on here today.
0: Thanks good for again. having me.
1: You want to reach out to Mark? It's quantumcapitalinc.com.
0: All right. Thanks, Jordan.
1: Thank you.